Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Welcome, Michael, and Happy New Year, since this is the first time we're connecting again and doing a Reflections episode in 2021. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here, starting the new year fresh. So on today's conversation, we are going to be reviewing three episodes in the Mirrors and Windows theme, and actually it's part one of two. Those three episodes include episode 138 with Caitlin Garvey on navigating grief through the Morning Report, her uh, memoir on losing her mother from cancer, Episode 139 with Kenya Hunt on her book, Girl, 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 on womanhood and belonging in the age of black girl magic. And episode 140 with Shu Matsuo Post on his memoir, I Took Her Name, Lessons from My Journey into Vulnerability, Authenticity, and Feminism. So before we get started, I just want to check in with you and see how you're doing. How was the beginning of the year so far? Well, uh, January was pretty rough with the news. Uh, as we all know, something like the Capitol riots. It seems like the United States has a, a lot to address uh, when it comes to women's rights. I think this is, uh, this is something that hopefully more people will, be, will understand the issues. Even though there's a lot of negative going on, I feel that we can do better. So when you said women's rights, uh and the capital riots. Could you elaborate on that for our audience? Sure. Capital riots, uh, as we all know, on uh, January 6th, there was there were a lot of uh, supporters of the previous president who didn't agree with the results of the election. There was a lot of violence and a lot of violence that was, for many people, justified. And it's sad to see that so many people still support this kind of violence while completely ignoring other kinds of violence, whether it be against women or violence against uh, minorities. So uh, that combined together with the Equal Rights Amendment, it's a lot to take in. Yeah, so I think my go-to phrase is, it's the patriarchy, stupid, you know, (laughs) and everything can relate back to the patriarchy, which sets up this model of this hierarchy of men over women, white people over black people, able-bodied over those with disabilities, straight over, you know, non-binary, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I think people don't realize that it's really this, this model of domination and male entitlement to have power over that is really at the root of so many of our social, economic, and political problems of our day. And so talking about the capital riots and its connection to women's rights, I think most people wouldn't understand that. But if people are complicit with a system that is trying to harm them, then obviously then they can't really uplift themselves and gain equality on so many different fronts. 
and with respect to the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, I guess this is from our, our viewing of reviewing, I should say, of equal means equal and what happened with regard to the recent disappointments on getting the ERA deadline extended and having the archivist of the U.S. recognize that the 38 states that ratified the ERA, that the deadline should be removed. That was a recent defeat that we experienced, I think it was in a district court, and I don't know what's going to happen next, but it's definitely been very disappointing that, number one, that that happened, and number two, that so few people were aware of it, that this ERA issue is not at the forefront of the Biden administration's discussion to bring about gender equality. They talk a lot about equal pay and Medicare for all and free college for all, but it it's not reflected in their support of the ERA. Right. I mean, it's also how the media that we're exposed to, there's not a lot of conversation in the news or in, in, in or regular talk in the media. So that's, it's something that few of us are doing, but um, I'm glad that we're touching on it. We're actually going to, we're going to share some links in this conversation to Generation Ratify, who is working to send a letter and galvanize people across the country to actually take action and get the Attorney General Merrick Garland to take action on the ERA. So we'll, we'll share those links of what people can do with regard to getting their support and helping to activate their elected officials to support this as well. And this is a great segue into the three episodes that we're going to be talking about today, because all of them have in some way or another to do with women, women's rights, women's lives, black women's lives, feminism, and how men can benefit from feminism. Let's start with the first one. I I think that Caitlin Garvey's memoir called The Morning Report was a good segue into this theme of mirrors and windows. And the the goal of that was really for us to look at ourselves as a society, as individuals, as Americans, and what is it that constructs us? What is it that gives us meaning? Is it something external? Is it something internal? How does it help us? How does it benefit us or hurt us? Mm -hmm. And with the morning report, I think also because the topic is about grief and loss, really um, aligns and connects with your bringing up of, you know, the January 6th incident. When you heard the episode, was there any kind of connection at all to the insurrection? Okay. So when it comes to the insurrection, one of the first things that I feel, right, is that sense of loss, that sense of, of this, this image that we have of the United States of, of like the capital being a place that symbolizes freedom and, and, and overall order, right? And for that image to be tarnished by what happened, it's, it's scary. And it, it, it has a lot to do with the loss of that, right? With the loss of that feeling of safety, a sense of safety. I think that by a lot of people normalizing what happened, it's like the end of, a, of an era of safety, I think. So this book by Caitlin was written in response to, you know, her journey through her grief. Uh, Her mother had died of cancer and she interviewed six people 
who were kind of various figures in her mother's lives who were there at the end of her life and and some or had some significance throughout her life. Mm-hmm. And it was a way for her to to get to know her mother and to get to know who was this person that she thought she knew and to to feel connected to her mother even after she had gone. And it it was very therapeutic. And I'm wondering, do you feel like these conversations, for example, it's it's in a way we're having our version of the morning report every time we have a reflections episode because we're talking about, you know, things that are happening in the world. Do you feel like it's therapeutic for you and it's helping you through manage the grief and loss? Like what Caitlin did, like, I I, I guess when she was writing this book, it was therapeutic for her because not only was she able to uh, learn more about her mom, but she was able to sort of relive it. It's kind of like what, during the conversations, you, you mentioned that uh, there was a book, a Harry Potter book, I think, that you didn't finish reading all of them because you didn't want it to end. So in, in a way, it was like reliving the story. So in, in a way, when we're doing these reflections, we're looking back and we're reliving these episodes and we're finding out more things, uh, dissecting more things from it that we could uh, recontextualize in different ways. So like, you know, how we could connect the Capitol riots and the Equal Rights Amendment and, and connect it to these episodes, it helps us understand these themes better. That's great. I mean, I I think it's really helpful for me. I mean, in a way, you're like my my mirror. You're, you're my mirror in the sense that you give me candid feedback you know, Mm -hmm. about your experience with the interviews. So I get a different perspective that adds to my knowledge of myself and what I, what I thought, how I experienced the interviews. Um, And then you're also a window because when we're talking, when we're talking about these episodes, you offer so many insightful and helpful resources, whether it was like a TV show or a podcast that you listen to or a book or something experience that you've had, a conversation that you've had that really adds some texture and layer. So I feel like, I mean, obviously for us, we are very aligned in our values and in our perspectives, but I wonder, you know, how much of these episodes can be mirrors and windows or how much can conversation be a mirror or window for people who are not as aligned as we are? So I think that part of the conversations that we have, we do include experiences that we have with other people, like, and I'm pretty sure it's going to happen later in this episode, where I'll talk about how somebody else sees the same topic, whatever it is that we're talking about. And I sometimes offer their perspective. And because again, a lot of people don't necessarily see things the way we do because they may not have the same knowledge and the same, we, they don't see it under the same context. So I think that, I mean, you know, I, you could say that I provide a window also in through my life, through what I see with other people. And I'm sure you do too. I think that if we continue these conversations and um, have other people like, you know, if you're interested if the listeners are interested, you know, we, we are open to sharing uh, experiences as well. So we can really bring in other perspectives from uh, those who are interested. So, yeah, that's something that I hope that we, we, we bring to the table. Well, 
since the episode aired, I was I was at a bookstore and I was looking for just, you know, browsing. And I came across in the sales section, I was so pleased with my discovery. I came across these books that were kind of in the in the journal section called My Mother's Life, My Father's mm-hmm. Life, you know, and then like my grandmother's life, my grandfather's life. And what it is is um you can take the book. And there are different prompt questions and you can answer it. So if you wanted to give, let's say, my mother's life to your mom, she would answer the questions. And then at some point in the future, you know, when she's no longer with you, you can look back on the book and it would be a gift to you to help remember, you know, what was it that was important to her. And obviously, while she's alive, you can use it as a discussion topic prompt because if she says something you can ask her well why is this you know you know it could it could help bring about be an entryway or a window into different stories that you wouldn't have thought of otherwise to really ask her about absolutely our parents and and family members have such different perspectives and it that would that, that you could put the link uh later on at the end of this to see so, so i would definitely want to uh look more into that it's one of the things that I've discussed with my father, where one of the things we, we figured, like, maybe we could write something together and figure out uh, so something so I, I could read later on and pass down to my children, if I have children. That's awesome. And, you know, it's kind of like reminds me, too, of StoryCorps. But oh, this is just a written version of StoryCorps. Um, what's, what's StoryCorps? I'm sorry. Oh, so StoryCorps, is, you love this. StoryCorps is a podcast. And it used to also be an app. So I don't know if the app still exists, but it's a podcast where people are, well, they used to have a mobile unit, a recording unit where they would go across the country and it would be housed in a certain area. So for example, in Union Square in New York, and people would go and sign up and record brief interviews and the host would ask questions. And then the people who are being interviewed either, you know, would say something um, where they're just talking about a particular, you know, event in their life or something that was meaningful to them, um, or they would interview someone that they came with. So they could interview their partner, their parent, their friend, um, a coworker, and the two of them would engage in a conversation. And and, and I believe the stories are archived in the National Archives and so the app part, actually, if it's still around, is you download the app and you could just record things that are prompts to questions, or you could use it as a tool to interview people in your life, kind of like what I just said about the journal. Right. It's actually a tool that you could just use to, you know, next time you see your father, you ask him when you were, the, what were you most scared of when you were young? that kind of question. And then then you record it. And then it's a way to sort of create an archive of his voice that you could listen to. So it's not, so it's not, yeah. So it's not written. So both actually have value, right? Having the the audio as well as the written part, because you could see what someone has written and the writing is, is so nice to be able to look back on. Of course. And I like that it has not just the positive things about it, but also like, you know, something that you're scared of. Like, it seems like it's all-encompassing of their lives or just a lot about their lives. That sounds really, really uh, helpful, especially 
in the future if you want to take a look at at um at the past and just remember all the times or who the person was that's sort of what Caitlin was doing when she was uh writing the morning report right she was learning a lot about her mother and she also talked about the difficult times that she had like when she was dealing with the anxiety and the guilt over her passing and it was it must have been very difficult for her and i can empathize so you know the next episode in our reflection theme on mirrors and windows is kenya hunt's book girl 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 um she's an african american woman who has been working and living in great britain for you know most recent part of her career and the mirrors part comes from her being basically displaced, you know, as an expat living in another country as an American woman and seeing how people in England view her as a black woman and view race, which is different from I guess how people in the US view race. And her exploration of womanhood and her identity and you know belonging, what that means is something that you know she covers in her book. So what was your impression of our conversation? I found it very um enlightening when w- w- there are a couple of things that you spoke about. I think one of the things that was mentioned with uh, social media that stood out where movements like BLM were facilitated by social media so you have a lot of people talking about the subject, but I think that you briefly mentioned that there was a lot of backlash too, which is something that a lot of people that are against the BLM movement is something that just happens, right? Right? When there's a, a movement that hopefully is there to bring about positive change, there's resistance. So, which reminds me of the same resistance when it comes to women's issues, right? So, something like the uh, something like the men's rights movement, where you have this, this this force that wouldn't exist without feminism, right? And it's just this this movement that gets amplified through social media. So while it's great that social media does spread the word, it, it's also a tool that's used by other people. Like, for example, even though there's a lot of documentaries that we've shared with everyone uh, regarding feminism, there are documentaries like The Red Pill, which is a movie highlighting the men's rights movement, right? Which is absolutely awful. It, that was one of the things that stood out. Well, wow. so yeah, I remember you bringing up the red pill, but before I respond, I just want to make sure that we're reminding the listeners that language is so important when it comes to naming power structures, right? And making visible those power structures and hierarchies. And to the extent that MRA, as you've referred to them as, or men's rights activists, call themselves activists, it's actually a misnomer because they're not activists, they're supremacists. It's like calling, you know, white supremacists, white activists. White people are in power. Um, They have systemic power and privilege. And saying that they are activists hides the fact that they are in power as if they are somehow disenfranchised. And similarly, men have systemic privilege and power over women in our society. So feminism is a movement 
to and a framework to actually bring about gender equality and end sexism and misogyny on a systemic level. So when people respond to that and oppose it, they're not activists because they're not disenfranchised. They're actually supremacist. So one of the the suggestions that masculinity experts who are feminists in this field have suggested is that we need to name them and make visible the manipulation that of language that they're using to hide their real intent, which is to maintain male supremacy. Right. Male supremacist is more accurate. That uh, Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's, it's scary because you don't know really who they are. I recently found out that someone that I knew supports this. So I, I was surprised by the lack of knowledge of a lot of people. I mean, and later on in, in the in the next episode, uh, we hear from a man who stated who that they don't want to be labeled necessarily feminist. And the reason that at first that he didn't want to be labeled as such is because he really didn't know what feminism is, right? I think overall, through the use of social media, right? I think uh, there is this narrative that feminism is bad and they'll use a, an example of let's say a person that made a mistake and then they'll amplify that, right? It's a lot of, of like simple marketing, right? That people use in order to talk bad about a specific movement and, and then people go along with it. It's just difficult. I think social media, while it's good for movements, it also amplifies the backlash. Well, so you're referring to Shu Matsuo um, Post? Um, who is a Japanese man who married a white American woman and they combined their last names to include her last name and his last name. And yeah, he did say that he started off rejecting feminism because he bought into the myth. And Mm -hmm. to the extent that he uh, correctly defined it, I should say, as basically a movement, you know, for gender equality and uh, to end sexism and misogyny, you know, systemic sexism and misogyny, as it manifests in sex discrimination and sexual violence and exploitation, all of that. When you shared this definition with your friend, which I'm guessing you did, how did right. this person respond? Um, I didn't want to continue the conversation with this person, specifically because a wasn't necessarily a friend, right? But B, it's it's something that they seem very passionate about. And also it was shocking because this person was female, right? Was a woman. So it, it's it, it's just an added layer of disappointment and it just, you know, it, it's difficult. So yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, the person's sex, because I'm in a online group and the topic actually came up today. There was a post by a woman about how women can be advocates for toxic masculinity. And yes, of course, because anybody of any sex of any gender can be supporters of patriarchy and the system that holds up patriarchy and maintains male dominance and uh, power and privilege. So I'm just curious, since we're having this conversation and this person is a woman, so there's this intersection of her gender and sex, 
uh, is this person also a, would would this person identify as a woman of color? Yes, and so here's the thing: uh, it's in a lot of ways a person who yeah is a person of color and is a woman. I think in a lot of ways it strengthens other people's belief that that for example men male supremacy is a positive thing because it's sort of like the Candace Owens right where people who are speaking against their own rights and against their own yeah against their own rights I feel it it makes it so that they can say well look it's a woman or it's a person of color who supports this so so that I can't we can't be racist or I can't be sexist right so it's it's disappointing on many levels. Wait, but, but yes, but but so I was trying to get at you know if this is a woman of color, there's like two parts of her identity where there's systemic discrimination because you know we know that you know people of color, black and brown people, earn less than white folks in this country, and that women earn less than men, and mm-hmm. women of color obviously even more so. So there's the intersectionality of systemic discrimination and does this person not recognize sexism does this person not recognize racism i'm guessing i, I can't say i can't say i, I haven't i haven't fleshed out a conversation oh because you ended the conversation i think this person is also young and maybe with time they will be exposed to more things and again i don't want to talk too much about this particular person because there's this person out sure has other things about their life that are positive and, and good. I think that I, I I think, you know, there's many sides to a person and and it's important for us to come with an open mind and understand that maybe that person hasn't been exposed to the same things that we've been exposed to. And maybe with time they will with more information, they will change their mind and change their views. I mean, when I was that person's age, I didn't know what I know now and I've couldn't articulate a lot of the things that I can now. And I think that I've changed over time. So I'm sure that people that we're, we're, that may have this kind of view may change their mind over time. Well, I think that's a really great attitude to have, Michael. Being in a space where possibility is always there, is always present. Possibility for change, possibility for transformation, possibility for growth. And obviously that's what you have to do when you're an advocate or an activist for anything. You have to be standing in hope and faith because if you didn't think that you could change things, then why would you be trying to? It would be an exercise in futility. And I also like the fact that you stopped the conversation because you also showed, you know, you respected your own boundaries of what you were capable of receiving in that moment, I guess. And, and so my question is, I know, and you and I have discussed this many, many times, but now with this new information, with this new experience, looking back at yourself at that age, if you were to have a similar conversation with someone, is there anything that that other person could do differently to have opened you up sooner or more or more effectively that you could then try to employ with this person next time you meet her? Here's the thing with that. I think that, for example, when I was young, I had this specific experience where I said something along, I I don't remember exactly what I said, but uh, it was a group setting 
And I said something along the lines of like, you know, I I don't remember exactly, but I said something that right now I would look at and say, wow, that was pretty sexist. But it was because I didn't know, right? There was my knowledge. I wasn't there yet, right? And it was received with, oh, that's interesting. That's wrong, but let's move on, right? And at the time, it made me think, right? And it wasn't until years later that I gained more knowledge and, and I was able to find out more about all everything, right? So, so like, I think, I don't know if at the time, I'd be, I think maybe if I was shamed, I may have had some of that backlash because I needed to protect my own ego. That would be something that maybe may not have drawn me into a place of enlightenment. I think that during that time, just, I really had to be, have been exposed to additional resources for me to to change my mind. So I maybe if if that person spoke to me and said, "Hey, listen, really had had a conversation about like facts or things that I didn't necessarily know, maybe that would help." And maybe in the future, uh, I could expose this person to the same kind of facts that I was exposed to, or the mm. same kind of information that I was exposed to, and have like the different point of view. So. That brings to mind, since we're still talking about Kenya Hunt's you know, episode on her book, Girl, 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 as a Black woman, as a Black American woman, I should say, in Britain, just this past Saturday, there was an SNL Saturday Night Live episode that was uh-huh. hosted by Daniel Kaluuya, a, a British, Black British actor. And he was famously in Get Out uh, and other films, um, which I loved. And right. anyway, Daniel. Uh, his opening scene for SNL, he made a joke about how, yes, you know, he has a British accent, he's British. And then some people will say he's black, you know, some people will say he's British, but he can be both. And and so there, there was that like, sort of addressing the fact that people can't hold two things at once, you know, in their mind. And then that the the punchline was, I'm the baby or I'm the person that the British, the Royal family was afraid of, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and and so it reminds me of, you know, obviously the Meghan and Harry interview. Did you see it? The Oprah interview with Meghan and Harry? I I saw the clips. I didn't see the entire interview, but I am, I'm aware of what happened. Okay. Uh, So you heard about how both of them shared that, one of the reasons for the impetus for them to right. leave was that somebody in the royal family was concerned about the color of the baby's skin of um, Archie, you know, who is a quarter black um, because right. his mom is, is um, biracial. Uh, and so was that surprising to you that if that statement were true, would that be surprising? If, if that's okay, <laughs> if that statement was true, it's interesting that you say that. Um, I, it's not really surprising. It's it's something that I think the average person does not have a difficult time believing believing that that's true. I don't think it's surprising to, the to answer average, your question. I don't think if it's a person. You're including all col- colors and races. Or I would just say saying, yes. So even the average white person, you think they will believe that there could be this kind of implicit colorism. Absolutely. I look, absolutely. I, I even, I, yeah, I would say even the average white person would probably feel the same. I, I, I think that in general, 
if that wasn't the case, there wouldn't be so much of this implicit bias towards people of color. It's just overall, like they, like we see it in statistics, we see it in, in police brutality. Like this is something that's overwhelmingly, that the bias is overwhelmingly present. So I, I do think that most people wouldn't find this hard to believe. And I believe even people like uh, Pierce Morgan would, even him would, would probably agree. And the only reason that he's defending them is, I don't know, just, just because he's racist. He's also sexist because he does. He thinks there's a place for a woman and Megan is moving, has moved out of her place, quote unquote place right. too many times. Um, so, you know, this brings me to, so the reason I bring this up is because we were having this conversation earlier just now about your friend and, you know, reserving space for people to change. And yet, you know, the British monarchy was when the news that Meghan was going to join the royal family, the news of the engagement and everything subsequent to the wedding that led to the wedding and following the wedding, their trips together overseas to Australia was very successful from like international perspective in terms of people just really embracing Meghan and what Harry said in Oprah's interview, I'll just fill you in, mm-hmm. is he didn't understand why the British royal family didn't take advantage of that opportunity to modernize the institution and really connect with people. Use Megan as an opera, not to you know use her as an exploit, but take take advantage of the opportunities, this opening, this window into. Right connecting with people and and instead what they did is she became too popular was the implication she was she was her her light was too bright and therefore they needed to snuff it out and and so this brings us you know to this like intersection of racism and sexism that there's a place there's a circumscribed place for women and people of color black people especially in this country as Derek Chauvin's trial is happening right now. And, and if you step outside, if you step out of line, you're going to be punished. Right. And so do you find it strange that the British Royal family hasn't grown and learned because it's had so many opportunities to. I think that in general, there has to be a reason for them to change and learn and grow, right? There's, the exposure of new information could be one of those factors, but it also, also if you are in a position of power, it may benefit you, the individual, not the society as a whole. And yes, ultimately it would help everybody if, if we're more informed and we're more accepting of everyone uh, because we move together as a society. I don't, I think individually in the short term, maintaining that sense of power makes them feel good or makes them feel safe so i think and that's just maybe how i view i don't think there's a reason for them to change so i guess if since you brought up the word reason obviously Mm -hmm. for shu his reason quote unquote to change was he met someone who was an english teacher who challenged him to think about you know, chauvinism, the chauvinism that he displayed during their courtship, woman who eventually became his wife. And 
and so have you ever been in a situation, Michael, where you were interested in getting to know someone, whether romantically or otherwise, and that person challenged you in your behavior or your thinking and made you motivated to want to think more and explore more? Um, I, I can't really say that, but I, I, I do feel that people that I have affected other people around me and people have, I, I, I think I've, I've shared knowledge with certain people, both in my professional and personal life that, that, you know, made them think. And, and I, I've challenged several people on some of the beliefs that they may have had uh, in the past. And I have seen change uh, happen the opposite way. When it comes to me personally, I don't, I, I, I don't know if any other person necessarily um, really changed my mind like Shu, whether it be, rom- I mean, definitely not romantic. Uh, I, I know that through you, 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 you've definitely uh, helped me change and, and, and understand a lot of things that I didn't know before and opened up my curiosity to exploring uh, other venues where I, I, I got to become who I am now. What about when you were in school? Was there a professor that you had that had really foreign opinions that you just... You know, like thinking back uh, through my schooling, like let's say starting when I was very young, like I I think back and a lot of those people had like really far right views. Like, um, like... Wait, these are teachers? Teachers, teachers, like looking back as, as, as a, as a, as a student in like elementary school, it wasn't something that I paid attention to. I just thought that this was the norm, right? Like capitalism is the best form of, 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 uh, uh, is the best thing that we, that could possibly exist and nothing else could be better. And, uh, reciting the Pledge of Allegiance is something that's super patriotic and, and a, a United States is the best country in the world you know like we, we have this 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 these this kind of um the way we grew the way i grew up here because again i grew up in the united states and and went through public school like these kind of thoughts were always i was always raised with these these ways of thinking right and only when i got older did i look back and say wait a minute maybe what i was taught wasn't a hundred percent uh hundred percent sure or maybe it like you know I always but then again I always challenge what it is the information that that, that it brought to me so I can't say at least in my elementary school that, that I was that I was challenged by any teacher or professor I think maybe in college when I think I was exposed to a lot more information uh, there was a history book that I was challenged when it came to like religion right where I was one of the assignments was to read uh, the Torah in English. And I guess my views on, on religion were really affected by, by that class, for example. But I, I really can't say that the, it was necessarily the teacher, but more the material. It, was it a religious studies kind of intro it class? It was history. No, oh, it was history. just regular old history class. And so was it a requirement or you chose it? Uh, it was, it was, it was a requirement. I had to, I had to learn they, like his, his, history. I forget what, what specific kind of history, but that was just one of the assignments, right? That was, uh, like, like, again, because the Bible is, is something that was written by humans and we had to understand like where these stories came from 
historically, right? Because that was, that it was, it was a history related class. And it was, so, so, you know, that, I, I mean, obvi- if, obviously if you're in a school or even in a vocational school, you're not going to be able to expose yourself to be exposed to liberal arts subjects and, and right. material. Um, so the fact that it was required is in a way good yeah. because you wouldn't have voluntarily chosen to read those books or whatever texts you had engaged with, um, which you know makes the case for obviously having requirements. But on the other hand, many schools and you know for for decades have been struggling with this concept of a core curricula and the core curricula has been very western centric and male centric and white centric right and so then Absolutely. it it's a, it, then you have this problem of what gets included and what gets right. excluded right that holds very true especially in elementary into high school right uh, this class was in Baruch in college, so this it, 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 it's very different. I think uh, I think in college is when a lot of people, including myself, I count um, that we 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 expand our our, uh, our our intellectual horizons. So again, like you mentioning that um, what we are learning in 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 in, in elementary is it's a lot of like you said white centric. Um, a, a lot of the things that we learn uh, that we w- that we don't know that we don't learn things like Juneteenth really really important. I didn't know about it until not too long ago, right? It, it, just because I wasn't really um, exposed to it in my elementary, and I, I and I you know I don't know everything, so I, but well, it, it's no, but it's I, intentional. I, it's intentional that that history, you know, Black history, is seen as separate and not integral to American history. You know, right. that the oppression, the history of the oppression of people, the enslavement of people, indigenous, you know, history of what was stolen um, is suppressed because it's it's this model of, you know, obviously this imperialist model of uh, white supremacy, white right. male supremacy. Right. Again, growing up, it was all about you know, American exceptionalism, how the, the, the United States is, is, is the best country in the world. And what is the United States? It's, it's white, it's male. It's, it's like, these are like the, the, the heroes that are explained in history tend to be white male uh, pe- people, George Washington, right? Abraham Lincoln, like it's, it, it's, it's something that's ingrained in our society. And there's not, not to say that their contribution wasn't overall positive. I think that there's a lot more history that should be taught in school and not just like, you know, Martin Luther King briefly without being more extensive about both the things in society that affect what happens now and what we're continuing to deal with. I think it's, it's, it's very important to, to be able to um, expand the curriculum. I believe that in many ways, I mean, I don't know how other countries view the United States, but I I believe the education of other countries would probably uh, teach children uh, a better understanding of what American history uh, or more complete uh, view of what American history looks like in comparison to what uh, my education was growing up here. Well, so I mean, I I agree and I disagree. I agree if we're asking countries 
that have been oppressed or hurt by us and exploited by us, they can give us uh, another layer of information that we don't get here in our textbooks. But if they've been economically supported by us, you know, if they've benefited from our aid in any way, even including our military aid, they may have a different perspective because they're in some ways obligated to sing praises about our, you know, involvement. And their their history books might be whitewashed with rose-colored glasses. I would say that I can't, I, I really don't know. I don't know the specifics, right? But one thing that I was told, right, was that, let's say, looking at politics in the United States, um, like, even some someone like Joe Biden is probably seen more as to the right, as opposed to left, while you have probably, like, again, like, the United States in general seems to be, have the idea that Biden is, is more on the left than Bernie Sanders is like far, far left. Right. So, so I don't know. I think I think based on that, I think uh, there are certain aspects of the of American society that is really influenced by American exceptionalism over here. Um, I'm not saying everything. I, I, when I say that maybe they have a better view, I'm not saying that it's the best view because you're right. It's probably whitewashed as well. Like, like even things like, like, you know, Jesus Christ is depicted as a white person in Europe as well. But I still think that maybe it's a little bit better than the rose-colored glasses that we have over here in the United yeah, States, yeah. or at least my personal uh, education, because I'll speak my education. You know, that's actually one of the re- reasons that Shu attributes to his misinformation about what feminism is is the lack of uplifting of female voices in culture, that there wasn't enough exposure and certainly not enough exposure by women about women, uh, but also by men about women. You know, what's what's shared by men about women is usually done in a sexualized way, in an exploitative way, in this binary way, like this virgin whore, you know, that we have, that men have where you're either pure or you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're, um, soiled. Right. And there's no, no nuance, no complexity to human beings that we can't be on the, along this continuum or maybe along this growth continuum, or maybe at different points in the continuum at different points in our lives or even moments of our current life. So there's right. none of that. None of that is allowed, in other words. Right. Now, one of the things that he mentioned also was how even in the language that is that that is used I guess in Japanese, you know, that, that same still kind of male supremacy exists, right? Like uh, he mentioned that the word for master is, is good when used for male, but not when used as, a, as women uh, in terms of, of female. So like that's that's something that that further emphasizes emphasizes the, the sexism in in Japanese society, for example. But yeah, that's probably true for so many other languages where the dynamics, you know, the power dynamics and the sexual power dynamics are embedded in the language. Where, you know, like you said, with master, 
you know, men have power. So it doesn't, there's no word that exists where women are masters, exactly. you know, where women have that role. And even when he was talking about partner, like how, mm-hmm. you know, there's no word to describe a wife who is an equal, but, and so he has to substitute the word partner that could be confused for business partner right? or a partner, maybe where you're, you know, and not a series of relationship as a marriage. Right. So, yeah. So it, it, people may confuse the actual uh, relationship there in that case. So, right. And, and, and like he further goes on to explain how I think it's just part sexism is so much part of his culture from, from like the trains where they have a specific car for women. So they don't get uh, groped by, by men. Like it's, it's, it, 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 it's just so common and that, that a lot of society accepts this as a norm. Yeah. And I really ha- hated that example because I think I, I mentioned it in our interview yeah. You know, why would you allow this behavior to persist by segregating women so they could be quote unquote protected instead of just holding accountable the men who grope, like put them in jail or find them, make the punishment or the consequence so severe that nobody wants to do it again. And I think one of the reasons that that he gave was like a lot of and when especially when he he said it that when he was younger, he feared that maybe uh, having a law like that would be, women would use it against him to falsely accuse him, right? Which is the typical thing that a lot of um, male supremacists say, right? That that women are going to lie about, uh, uh, about uh, an accusation, right? And they would get punished when they're completely innocent, right? So I, I think that sort of thought is one of those backlashes that really contribute to us not well, well actually will will we'll prevent us or, or hold us back from changing laws to hold men accountable. Yeah, and actually it's kind of a logical fallacy because one can make that argument about anything in life, you know, that yeah. any structure or process or law legislation that you try to implement with the intention of preventing bad behavior and having consequences for bad behavior can always be weaponized against the victim. And what's weird, well, not what's weird, what's like sexism isn't, I mean, sorry, like uh, accusations, uh, like false accusations aren't more common than any other crime where some person, like for example, stealing, there is a small percentage of, of people who falsely accuse somebody of stealing, right? But Nobody, nobody draws attention to, to those people who lie about stealing, but so many people pay attention to the few, few, few people who lie about a false sexual uh, uh, accusation towards a woman. So like, it's, it's a really sad part of society, how we, we exaggerate that part. Yeah. And we have a double standard, you know, because these standards exist in other situations and, and, and we allow the double standard to keep us from making progress in this area, which is the realm, which is the realm of women's rights and women's equality and women's safety. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and so, I don't know. I mean, what, I like the book a lot. And I thought it was actually, as I mentioned, to Shu, 
a very accessible book to many age ranges. So it's a great, when you were talking about education before, it's a great book to introduce. It's like feminism light. Right. You know, to introduce to many people because you're starting with a topic that's not directly feminist, although it, it obviously is, which is, is yeah. changing your last name. So many people can approach that book with the curiosity of, oh, why did he change his last name? And then they get the feminism later. So I'm curious, Michael, now that we've had that episode air, have you thought about your own willingness if your partner wanted you to change your last name or if you wanted to voluntarily? Is that something you'd be open to? Oh, absolutely. It's not nothing. I mean, I, I think in the past I may have responded with, oh, I don't know about that, or I'll feel some type of way. I think right now, and I'm saying it right now, but I think I'm definitely open to it. Yes, why not? Like that's, it's only fair, right? It's, it's, it's supposed to be equal. So yes, I would change my last name. Okay, that's great. Uh, so was there anything that Shu said that also opened your eyes to his experience that you connected with? So Shu seems like, it, it, because he's Japanese, I think, that that's a culture that since I was young, it's something that I admired, right? It was like, oh, the Japanese, I have a certain kind of like idea of what Japanese culture was. And for me, it's always fascinating to learn about a new culture. So it was uh, like a lot of his stories, a lot of the things that he said was a, a good view into what Japanese culture is like, like the the story of the trains, right? How, how it actually is. One of the things that stood out though was was he was talking about how he would read dating books for men. I guess it highlights again the culture of what what men are told and how it perpetuates this sexism. So um, while I don't read books on dating for men, I heard of through YouTube, there are like these videos that pop up about YouTubers, these men that are trying to show you how to date women and what's the best strategy. And so like a lot of this same kind of like toxic masculinity is expressed in these videos where women are treated as objects and men say things like men in these videos say things like, well, you gotta, you gotta make sure that you are treating each woman that you date as a horse in the stable and that you, you transition them. And it's like, again, this, this view that women are objects and not people that are equal to men. So it's, that's something that, that I thought of that stood out when he mentioned that. Yeah, so there's this whole genre of content where basically men are teaching other men how to manipulate women and either make the conquest of women smoother, faster, easier for men. And it's 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 kind of like this game where you could see I'm sure there's they're keeping track of how many is this contest amongst people who are participating, you know, how many women can you get to believe you, you know, kind of like that, the proverbial at the bar, you know, how many women can you get to, to smile at you or kiss you those, those bar games. Right. 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 So it's, it's really unfortunate that they exist, that people can't just connect with one another at a human level that sets aside gender just right. connecting around what people's likes and passions and interests are rather than, you know, what they look like and what kind of benefit they can offer in terms of sexual 
pleasure. Right. Yeah. So that's that's something that's sad. Something else that I thought was interesting that he mentioned was how because of COVID, women have been affected very disproportionately when it came to suicide. So he mentioned that because that then in Japan, people who are part-time workers don't get benefits. And so financially, they're disadvantaged. And it seems that in Japan, there are a lot of women who are part-time workers. So even in a pandemic, we see the disadvantage of women uh, being affected disproportionately. I mean, we also see it in, in, in the United States with domestic violence, right? It's interesting to see. Um, I, I mean, we, we did a whole series on the gendered impact of COVID and and all of these issues came up. And I think that Shu's reference to it only lends more you know validity and weight to the fact that it is a universal problem. You know, mm-hmm. because part-time gig workers in the U.S. are also women. I don't know. I'm guessing not because we don't even track femicide in this country. Mm-hmm. But if there are increases in suicide, I don't know if we're tracking that. And and then further, if we're tracking it by gender and sex. So I, I don't know that we can comment on it, but I wouldn't be surprised if women in this country felt so much emotional labor, um, and the burden of carrying the weight of homeschooling and, and remote learning and cooking and cleaning and working from home and all of that and not having any break and support, that it took a toll in a very drastic way. Absolutely. I, I appreciated his, his uh, point of view in, in this particular episode. Well, this brings us to the close of our conversation. We're going to be talking next time about the next three episodes in the Mirrors and Windows series. Mm -hmm. And uh, until then, I hope you can stay safe and uh, positive. Thank you for continuing to have conversations with people outside of your value system and and being in and, and standing in possibility, Michael. I really appreciate that. Uh, It's my pleasure. I I wouldn't do it if I didn't enjoy it. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoIt Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join CanDoIt Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.